Coming on the Agony Column podcast, cultures clash in John Burdett's new novel, Bangkok Haunts. The culture of shame is continually disciplining itself of itself using the power of the group, whereas in the culture of guilt, what you have is individuals fragmented, sitting on their own, sometimes shivering in a corner, thinking, oh my God, am I doing the right thing or not? Are you doing the right thing? Find out on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. When Superman morphs into Godot, you can be sure you've reached a deeper, more nuanced level of the American initiation. Ask the Iraqis. It's been one excuse after another from my biological father, a.k.a. Superman. I contacted him more than a year ago in the teeth of outrage objections from Nong. If he wanted to know us, he would have got in touch decades ago. And to my astonishment, he replied with true Yankee enthusiasm and promised to visit as soon as his legal practice gave him a break. Since then, it's been one excuse after another. Nong has begun to doubt that he really intends to come see us at all. And now we've just received an email to say he's had to postpone again on the advice of his doctor. We're in the old man's club at about 6.30 in the evening and Nong is ranting about Farang men in general and him in particular. Why do they make these stupid promises they don't intend to keep, as if we're children who can't take reality straight? This is the problem with their whole culture. They think the rest of the world is as childish as they are. A Thai man would have told us to get lost, and we would have forgotten about him by now. We are tiny figurines hanging from the charm bracelet of infinity. When these bodies wear out, we will migrate to others. What will I be next? Tinker, tailor, tiger, fly, demon, Buddha, mountain, louse... All things are equal in their essential emptiness, but will there be a planet worth living on in 50 years? Chatna means next life, and if you're a Buddhist, you worry about it. Not only yours, but the Earth's too, for it also is a living being with its own karma, with which our own is inextricably entwined. Well, it's getting hotter year by year. That's finally official. Even scientists employed by the United States government now agree We will be the only species in cosmic history deliberately to fry itself to extinction. I happened to be watching the BBC on our cable this morning and half expected the newscaster to adopt an urgent tone. But he used the same smooth voice as for births, deaths and football results. It's not his fault, of course. He knows better than most how retro normality can be. But what is the appropriate reaction when the mind relies on denial to balance itself? Carry on as normal, I guess. Just keep burning carbon. Environmental fascism will come eventually. When the Himalayas are melting, leaders of the English-speaking countries will threaten to nuke to a crisp those third-world nations still relying on fossil fuels. That'll help global warming. John Burdett is the author of A Personal History of Thirst and the Last Six Million Seconds and the Sanchai Jitli Cheap Mysteries, including Bangkok 8 and Bangkok Tattoo. His new novel is Bangkok Haunts. Welcome to the program, John. Thank you, Rick. Nice to be here. This is, I think your funniest book. (laughs) Also, I think the book in which the clash between the East and West is most apparent. Tell us what informs this clash for you, where you live in Bangkok. Yeah, I've been now living in Bangkok for for more than five years. My Thai has improved. I mean, I'm not not, um, fluent, but I'm sort of intermediate. 
And also, I've become totally gripped by by Buddhism. Um, it's something that just grows on you, as a sort of uh, I see it as a, an instrument of uh, reprogramming the mind, and it's it works terrifically. But the more I do that, the more I'm forced to to question Western values at a at a level at a depth that I never really um, considered before um, I changed my lifestyle in this way. What kind of changes did you make? No, no specific changes at all. Although I guess there's a change in attitude, but um, it's a it's an internal um, it's an internal experience. I think the main point to make really is that Buddhism looks at human beings as the product of a huge number of causes, chain of cause and event, and it's perfectly possible using the very simple but very powerful techniques of, um, of Buddhist meditation to actually observe those causes which have produced the human being which you are at this moment. And of course, like everything else, once you know what the causes are, you will then have the power to change those causes. And it can be done um, with extraordinary um, speed. Your new novel, Bangkok Haunts, is I think the most supernatural of your novels. And I really enjoyed this aspect of it. It's truly a ghost-haunted novel. How did you discover the premise of this novel? Well, firstly, I, I like to sort of... Each novel is a sort of a huge challenge, a new kind of imaginative challenge. That's sort of the way I work. I think the mind is, is a bit like a mountain climber. You know, give a high enough mountain and you get a better climber. But And so um, the mountain here really was how to put the supernatural into a, a, what's usually called a police thriller, um, where the supernatural doesn't normally appear, or if it does, it's usually debunked. I've gone the other way, and it's like the, the, the supernatural is actually controlling the natural here. And uh, I just thought that would be a terrifically fun thing to do. And then I got myself to the, to the end of the book, and I thought, my God, I just don't know how to end a book like this, which has gone into ghosts and gone into the supernatural. And once again, I had to sort of, you know, grit my teeth and bite the bullet and end with a finish with a supernatural ending. And once I sort of realized that I needed to do that, the ending came quite naturally to me. And I, I sort of I'm quite pleased with it. One thing about the way the supernatural works in this book is that your story is all told in the first person. Yes. And your character believes in all of these things. So as we look through his eyes, we just see a really interesting vision of the world as peopled by all sorts of superstitions and ghosts. How do you collect these superstitious beliefs and, and these ideas about ghosts yourself? Yeah. Well, I, I know a lot of Thai people. Um, I'm very close to a few Thai people. And I have a Thai girlfriend. And uh, you can't spend much time with Thai people without learning an awful lot about superstition. For example, if you look at the beginning of the book, I dedicated it to Nit. Nit is my girlfriend. And when I showed it to her, I said, look, you know, I've, I've dedicated this book to you. And um, I added, um, you know, if I sell a million copies, I'll buy you a Lexus because she, she wants a Lexus. So the next day, I mean, the very next day, I was dragged off to a nine-temple tour of Ayutthaya, which is a sort of a holy city about 50 miles north of Bangkok, so that we could bring in the luck to, to sell the million copies. Apropos of, what, of the question also is that later that day she was complaining that she was uh, not very fit. So I took her to a, a gym where I said, you know, why don't you use this gym? And she looked, took one look at it and said, no, it's, it's full of ghosts. I can't use this gym. So one is living in a, in a sense in a supernatural environment by living in Bangkok. 
one of the superstitions I found really interesting was this idea of colors for each day. And yes. Tell mm. us a little bit about that. This is something I, I stumbled upon comparatively recently. It is a, a Brahmin um, institution. The Thai, um, the Thai character, the Thai national character and their culture was very much influenced by Hinduism because there was a huge amount of trading with the Indians, and eventually it was the Indians that brought Buddhism to Thailand in about 1300. But they didn't just bring, it, bring Buddhism in a, in a pure form, they brought it mixed up with Hinduism and with their own um, beliefs and superstitions. And one of them was that each day, just as we actually, if you look at the days of the week in English, each day represents a god. Uh, in our case, a Nordic god. If you speak a Latin language, it would be a, a Roman or Greek god. So with them, it's, it's the color, the vibration of a particular color, which goes with each um, particular day. That there's, a, there's an addendum to that. The Thai people, as I think everybody knows, absolutely adore their king. And the king's favorite color, his color, is yellow. And you cannot but notice every Monday morning, uh, something like half the population are wearing yellow, the king's color. This is, uh, I mean, this is the way, one of the ways in which they express themselves. It also surprised me that Sanchai... Uh, subscribes to astrology, which doesn't seem <laughs> at all either Buddhist or anything else. It's kind of just out there. Oh, well, you, you, you can't get away from astrology. If you go back enough into, um, into the development of the Thai character and into Buddhism itself, you find that it both are deeply informed by Hinduism. If you go into Hinduism, you find that Hinduism actually is a vast, sort of almost a global, uh, a global system which uses just about everything in the human world as a, uh, and includes everything. I mean, Hinduism is absolutely famous for including and finding a spiritual aspect to absolutely everything. For example, one of my favorite trees in all the world is a tree in Kathmandu, which is dedicated to the bat god. And um, it's full of bats. Bats live there and, and they won't do anything about it because the tree belongs to the bats and the, and the bats are, belong to the bat god. There's a god for everything, monkeys, bats, rats, and, and that sort of thing. And this sort of, uh, and astrology also is part of that. So this, um, once you go into it just a little bit, you realize you're, you're actually going back in time to, from the Western mind is almost a, a medieval um, state of mind in which there are gods and, um, and stars and things influencing absolutely everything. There's a particular phrase that occurs again and again. A cannot be not A. Mm. Yeah, I loved that because that was, um, that of course is Aristotle, and that concept, A cannot be not A, is the absolute foundation of logic, which of course is the, um, is the mental foundation of the whole of our society. Well, I realized that. Um, for, obviously, from a, a, a point of view of the structure of logic, of the logic that we have, it's absolutely true. But I realized that you actually divide your mind when you, when you totally adopt that as your only perspective on life. And the, the spiritual side, the Buddhist side, the meditation side is not an analytical exercise. It's a holistic exercise. And to achieve the holistic exercise, you have somehow to deal with this um, Western tendency to divide and to analyze and to contrast. And um, that's why it comes up, and that's why at the end of the book, the, the concept that A cannot be not A is conclusively defeated by a, a, a supernatural event. Let's talk a little bit. 
about the other half of this book. We've been talking about the Buddhist and the spiritual. There's another half of this book, pornography. Yes. (laughs) Well, ever since I've been doing research in Bangkok for these books, I've got very, very irritated with Western media who just go there, they spend a few hours at the bar, they they find some poor, forlorn-looking girl who's willing to say anything that they want her to say, and the whole thing starts to look as though um, prostitution in Thailand is a direct result of middle-aged white men going over there and exploiting the girls. And then when I came across the article in the New York Times, which um, describes just how huge the pornography industry can be, is, and if you consider what pornography actually is, it's people um, who are paid to have sex, who are having sex for money in front of a camera. In other words, it's prostitution on a camera, prostitution on film. And it's one of the biggest industries and the most rapidly growing industries in the West. This, to me, points to the arrant hypocrisy of the media in this particular field. It's interesting. I've read that article. GM and Marriott are the biggest distributors of porn. Yes, I know. Isn't it marvelous? And there's a lot of interesting stuff. One thing I had to ask is that these, your Thai... Uh, sex business in, in, is driven a lot by web pages, and, and I'm wondering how, what kind of uh, domain names they use. I mean, <laughs> well, I don't know because um, you come across the more sophisticated uh, working girls who have their own web pages, and it will be something like um, nong.com or nongathome.com or something like that. So there's a there's a, there's a huge variety of uh, domain names which they use. Let's get to the more specific aspect of the book. It begins with uh, San Chai and his friend Kimberly, whom he often just calls FBI. Yes. uh, Watching what he terms as a crime that makes us fear for the evolution of our species. Yes, that's right. It's um, if Sanchai being the son of a a prostitute himself and having been a, a very poor background in Thailand feels um, deeply for the for the kind of psychology that is that is developed as a consequence well it's partly as a consequence of the Thai tradition of prostitution but it's also largely a consequence of um, of globalism and um, and uh, behavior by the by the wealthy nations the G8 nations who subsidize their own agriculture which means that people are far poorer than they ought to be and far poorer than they need to be. And the extremes to which someone like the heroine in the book, Namron, goes, looks, begins to look really as though humanity is not going forward at all, at least not on a psychological or a social or um, a spiritual level. It's actually going backwards. Sure, we're going forwards in terms of um, applied science, and that's great. I mean, I'm a great fan of technology, but um, to think that because we have wonderful technology these days means we're actually evolving as a, as a species seems to me to be quite wrong. It's um, because what does it do to the, um, to the actual human being, to the psychology of the people involved? I find it really interesting when you talked about the, uh, agri- the way that the agricultural subsidies affect uh, the lifestyle in Thailand because the upshot of this is that the uh, prostitution becomes an extremely honorable uh, Absolutely. tradition. It is honorable. Um, it's not honored by sophisticated Bangkokians, but it's certainly honored by the villages from, from which these girls emerge. And 
if you think about it, what you've got is these kids, I'm calling them kids, they're usually between 18 and 30, who are usually supporting not only themselves and their parents, but their siblings, their nephews and nieces, their grandparents, their uncles. They are providing the only welfare service that a, that a country like Thailand can possibly have. And I'm told, I don't claim to be an expert, I'm told that this is true all over the third world. You find exactly the same thing in South America and uh, in Africa. The piece of film that Sanchai and Kimberly are watching is is a, a snuff movie. Yes, and there's been a lot more interest by law enforcement in there in these, isn't hasn't there? In the in the snuff movie. Yes. Yes. Sure. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, ooh, once again, you, I, I'm sort of on slightly dangerous ground because none of this is um, is out there in the, in the public domain, but. Um, if you if you're a writer and if you sort of mix a lot with people, um, particularly in a place like Bangkok, all sorts of sinister stories emerge, and they seem to have um, a truth to them. And there's an awful lot of um, kidnapping, uh, um, including kidnapping of children, an awful lot of um, um, how shall I say, truly sinister, truly evil goings on in which which are somehow part of the. Uh, the, the uh, worldwide sex industry, which um, it, it's very disturbing. I don't know quite how much truth it is. Obviously, if you're writing a novel, you don't have to check the facts in the same way as if you're a reporter. But um, it feels like it's probably true that these sorts of things are going on, yeah. The the East-West culture is, is really important. The culture clash is very important in this book. And there's, there's all sorts of evidence of it. And one thing that I thought was really fascinating was that at one point a character mentions that in for the Buddhists there's no original sin. And that makes a huge difference in the way they view life, view everything. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm not an expert on Islam. I don't know if they have original sin or not. But certainly for the vast bulk of the population of the earth, the idea of original sin seems sick, morbid, depressing and calculated to cause a psychosis in the people who, who hold to that view. Sure, there's no necessity to look at life as if there is an original sin, as though you know Adam and Eve did something dreadful for which we've been paying for forevermore. The Buddhists look at it quite in a, in a completely different way. What you do at this moment will have consequences, and it's your choice. If, if you're making a positive contribution, if you're acting in a positive way, even if it's something really simple like smiling rather than scowling, that will have a knock-on effect. And if you build up positive karma, you will find eventually that you're living a very, very positive life. If, you li if you're building up negative karma with negative attitudes and ne negative reactions to the world, you'll have a miserable life. And of course, people who end up with miserable lives always look for a scapegoat. And uh, we've got this... Um, in a sense, God-given scapegoat in in the, in the West in the form of original sin, and that leads to this schism uh, of the culture of shame versus the culture of guilt. Yes, what a great concept. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, I don't know who invented that, that but that's a sort of classic um, anthropological way of or sociological way of um, of dividing cultures. And it's interesting which cultures do what, because it's not as if the um, the culture of shame is unique to the East. Um, I'm told that South America, Mexico, places like that, is much more a culture of shame than a culture of guilt. Culture of shame simply means that your actions are overtly, obviously, unashamedly conditioned by the expectations of the society around you. You don't have to think 
is this really right what I'm doing? I, you know, do I feel that I'm acting in accordance with my conscience here or not? That's the culture of guilt. The culture of shame is what are people going to be seeing me as if I act in this way? What kind of social identity am I going to get? So I think to a Christian or someone brought up in the, in the Christian tradition, that sounds like a bit of a cop-out, but if you think about it, it's, um, it has a huge functional value because it means that the, the culture of shame is continually disciplining itself of itself using the power of the group, whereas in the culture of guilt, what you have is individuals fragmented, sitting on their own, sometimes shivering in a corner, thinking, oh my God, am I doing the right thing or not? And less easy to um, to form a, a, a homogenous society. It interests me. This book, the Khmer, Khmer, yeah, Khmer, um, play a big part in this book. What we know of the Khmer is just some third-hand reports uh, of atrocities at the end of the of Vietnam War, and, mm. and I'm wondering what you know. And what ties know, how they know it. Because they make a statement, all magic comes from the Khmer in the end. Oh, yes. Well, the um, the Khmer, I mean, you have to go back a bit. The Khmer who built Angkor Wat in, I think, between 11 and, um, I think between 11 and 1700 A.D., were deeply, deeply into magic. And it goes back to what I was saying before, that the, the, um, the cultures of Southeast Asia were deeply influenced by Hinduism and by the Indian traders who came, the Indian tra traders came and went with the shift in the monsoon winds and brought their um, their beliefs, their religious beliefs with them. Now, if you look at the literature, and there's tons of English literature about Indian superstitions because the English um, colonized India and were, were there running the place for hundreds of years, you see just how unbelievably superstitious the Indians were at that time. And they brought this... Um, superstition, which is founded on a form of magic. It can be white magic, it can be black magic, but basically, like all magic, it's, um, it's a means of controlling the world using symbolic means rather than uh, logic or, or machines. And the absolute masters of this are considered to be the Khmer. And if you go to Angkor, you can see why. They've got their magical um, inscriptions all over the place. They built one of the most stupendous temple complexes, which is bigger than Manhattan, um, ever. It's, a, of course, one of the most visited sites after the pyramids of, of Egypt. And this is where it all comes from. This is sort of a, a, like a sort of a magical, almost a black magical power that comes out of the Khmer. And they wrote their, um, their incantations, their spells in the ancient Khmer language. And this language and talismans and um, amulets and things with, written in the Khmer language are, are still considered, um, you know, the best, the Rolls-Royce of magic in, uh, in Bangkok. You create a really fascinating and deep and complicated character, damn wrong. Mm. Tell us a little bit about creating that character, who she is, and, and the part she plays in the plot in this book. Well, I, I spent more time in the Thai countryside in the past couple of years than I, than I had done before. And um, I have to say, I witnessed the effects of poverty firsthand. Not only the fact of, that people have um, absolutely no uh, disposable income, but also the fact that they've got nothing to do all day quite often. And one of the problems is 
yabar methamphetamine, which which is a, a plague in Thailand because it's so easy to to produce. I mean, it's another thing. The West, in its simplistic attitude, okay, you you get burn the opium fields, stop the heroin trade. So what do people do? They they find something which is even worse than heroin. And I do believe that methamphetamine is worse than heroin. And what happens then if you are a child born to extremely poor parents who themselves are drug addicts, who themselves are criminals, and yet this person, in this case the girl Damrong, is highly intelligent and um, a very, very powerful personality in herself. What happens to someone who is um, dynamic, strong, intelligent, and yet cramped and imprisoned in a, in a mindset, in a way of thinking which is so terribly dark? And I think... She's like a volcano. There's these volcanic forces operating in her. And because I chose to go into a sort of a supernatural background, it means that these volcanic forces can express themselves in a supernatural way rather than simply in a, in a destructive way. I mean, I guess I suppose in the West she would be a killer or a, a multiple murderess or, or something like that. But fortunately I'm in, uh, I'm in the East so I can, I can let her express herself supernaturally. Let's talk about the different kind of ghosts. You say that all of South Asia has the ghost bug, and especially young girls. Why Mm. is that? Well, um, to be honest, I don't think it's got very much to do with ghosts. I mean, young young girls need to express their their sensitivity, their emotions, their longings, and their fears, especially one way or another. I think in the in the West, the, the phenomenon of the hypochondriac sixteen-year-old is very well known. It doesn't work so much that way in the East. In the East, it's more like a, a girl will come home and say, oh, "I saw ghosts today," or "There are ghosts all over the place yesterday," and something like that. And that she's using that to express her her feelings. I wouldn't. I mean, in all honesty, I wouldn't take the the ghost reference all that seriously. But then, but ghosts are actually accepted by the society as a legitimate way of. Uh, of talking about your feelings, which which is great fun. I mean, instead of having to sort of go to a psychiatrist, all you need to do is say, you know, I was haunted by a ghost last night, couldn't sleep, and uh, that's okay. <laughs> I've been haunted by ghosts <laughs> myself. I, that's a, I'll keep that in mind. There's a, a scene in this book where the coroner uh, videotapes uh, a body, mm. and she records something that the Kimberly cannot even begin to believe. Mm. Tell us a little bit about that scene and is this something that you heard about or No, this is this is me actually deconstructing and reconstructing Buddhism when it applies to what happens to the psyche or whatever you want to call it after death. There are very specific stages in Buddhism. Um, the moment you die, if you've been trained in Buddhism or if you're surrounded by Buddhist um, monks, the moment that you die, if you're able at that instant to join with a, an incredibly powerful white light which appears to you, then you're home and away. You're enlightened and whether you have another body or not, it doesn't matter. You would be able to choose whether or not to incarnate. Of course, for most of us, that's completely out of the question. The experience is so extraordinary and so powerful um, th- that we couldn't stand it. But you can then ratchet it down, sort of as to in in, in a sense of vibrations of less and less power, and at each level, this is the dead body. This is the psyche uh, um, leaving the dead body. At each level, the psyche can choose um, to escape via a less um, a less dramatic, a, le- a less final form. 
And then there comes a point when it cannot, when it is trapped in what you would, what are, are simply um, animal impulses. And it's these animal impulses which are being photographed um, by the uh, by the doctor. I was I thought that was a really fantastic scene. I'm wondering were there what what kind of supernatural or horror fiction have you read that that informs this book any or No, I I never find horror fiction has enough horror in it, you know. It doesn't actually appeal to me. It's either so crude or um or it just doesn't work at all. So I had to sort of, you know, starting really from uh, from ground level as far as that's concerned. Interesting, because this novel has plenty of horror, <laughs> and it's pretty extreme. Mm. Uh, I think one of the most striking uh, aspects of it is uh, the elephant game. Ah, well, the elephant game I did not make up. The elephant game appears in uh, in a very good book by a convicted heroin trafficker in Australia. I think spent 12 years in one of the toughest jails in, uh, in Thailand. Produced his book called um, uh, The Damage Done. And he mentions fairly early on in the book um, the elephant game, which he said had gone out of style when by the time he was there, but it was still in uh, a part of the memory of the of the other prisoners, and it's described in in some detail. And I've actually stuck to the detail that uh, that he gives us. Could you give us some of that detail, Tesla? Uh, yeah, what happens is elephants are actually not particularly nice creatures. They're not the big gentle giants that uh, of of Western mythology. They're, they're very sensitive and they're very moody. Um, a male elef- elephant, when it goes into must, which is like um, is on the male equivalent of being on heat, is insane. Um, he goes completely insane. Um, and elephants kill their mahouts regularly. Mahouts in India are the, um, are the biggest drinkers and the most stressed out people in the whole country. Um, so that's the background to what an elephant is. The elephant game is simply that the um, the guards would build a latticework bamboo ball big enough to take a man with a hatch. They'd bring the man bound, um, put him inside the hatch, close the hatch, and then they'd bring in an elephant. And the elephant being uh, usually a youngish elephant, and youngish elephants like the young generally are very curious, and the elephant would just push the ball around with its trunk for a while. And then when the ball didn't behave exactly the way he wanted it to behave, he'd get frustrated and start stamping on it. And of course, during this, <laughs> during this, um, shouldn't laugh, during this time, the, um, the guy in, who's stuck inside the ball knows exactly what's going on. So what, it, it's, it's really, um, it, it's really like, uh, um, ancient Rome, you know, where the audience, in this case the guards, the prison guards, are getting off on the um, extreme um, terror of the the person involved. It's just like the Colosseum, really. I found the scene in your book where they kill an elephant to just be... uh, It was extremely horrific. Mm. Did you ever see that happen? No, that scene really is is intended to reflect the the dreadful... uh, psychology that the Khmer got into, I'm afraid thanks to the Nixon bombing of half of their country and followed by the CIA support of the uh, of the Khmer Rouge of Pol Pot, they got into such a state of utter brutality, as everybody knows, I think, and they were using children um, as murderers and all sorts of things, 
Um, so that scene is it, I, I made up because it seemed to me to express rather well the the appalling psychology that that can happen when the, that, those kind of nexus of circumstances takes place. This book is a really fascinating if you start to analyze it as a thriller. Mm. Because it's what I called a Western thriller. It, it has aspects of both Western yeah. and Eastern. Yeah. And could you talk about some of the literary devices that you use to, that you not only use, you subvert and annihilate? Yeah, well, I, I'm just one of those people. Ever since I was a kid, I loved turning things on their heads. I was always taking toys apart and putting them back together in a different way. And what I've done here, I think, is uh, you're absolutely right, because the morality of the uh, of the crime thriller, of course, is the, the, the cop nabs the robber. But here the cops are the robbers, and so you have to have a substitute morality, which, uh, which ends up really being Sanchez rather ambiguous, rather confused, but but at the end of the day, genuinely committed um, uh, um, attitude to Buddhism, really. There's a scene where Sanchai has to figure out how he's going to browbeat a, a victim of the higher class. I blatantly used uh, Tanakan, the name, because Tanakan in Thai means bank, and this guy's a banker, so that seemed like an easy way of doing it. The whole of Thailand is really run, essentially, by Thai Chinese, Chinese who originally came from the Swatow area in China, and are brilliant financiers, brilliant businessmen, and also occupy a very, very high um, rung in the Thai society, which is, a, which is essentially feudal. And uh, many of them are the uh, uh, part of the uh, court of the king. So when someone like Sonshay or his, his master, his boss, Colonel Vaikorn, have to approach someone like that, they have to do it extremely carefully, extremely delicately. And Vaikorn, of course, being the consummate rogue that he is, is able to do that by um, not really pretending humility so much as actually putting himself in a totally humble um, groveling frame of mind, which he does you know, rather well. <laughs> um, this book is very, very funny. Mm. It's, it's filled with all sorts of great forms of humor, and a lot of it comes out of the Buddhist religion, which mm. it's, we think of the Buddhist religion as serene and all-encompassing. We don't think about it as funny. No, that's because we. I think it's been badly misrepresented in the West. I mean, when I was young, sort of in the late 60s, early 70s, the Buddhists, there were all sorts of Buddhist groups in London. And what it meant really was sort of Westerners just plastering a, a benign smile over their faces and thinking that they were on the way to enlightenment. It was only recently, I mean, the past 10 years, when I really got into Buddhism, I realize what it is. Buddhism is total mental freedom. And just imagine, I mean, just put yourself... Any, in any memory you have where you've suddenly felt liberated, I mean, maybe when you got out of school or maybe when you left home or when, maybe when you've, you owned your first car or motorbike, that sense of liberation, a Buddhist actually experiences a much more powerful sense of liberation than that all the time. And the liberation, I'm not saying I've achieved that level, I haven't, but I'm sufficiently aware to see how it happens. And that's... Um, that liberation includes liberation from any fear of death. Now, this is very interesting because Buddhism comes out of Hinduism to some extent. And Hinduism has exactly the same um, observation to make. And there are levels of, um, I don't know what you want to call it, levels of awareness which are recognized in Hinduism. And they're very specific. It's almost like a, a scale of values. And one level 
which is achieved by a Hindu or yogi meditator and also, uh, also by a, a Buddhist meditator, is the point at which um, ma material values, the body itself, become a huge joke. And that's where the, um, the smile of the Buddha comes in. It's that they've achieved that total liberation even from any, um, any, any attachment to the body at all. And they're laughing at death. Ultimately, what's happening is people are, are sufficiently developed, sufficiently evolved to be able to laugh at death instead of bearing it as a, as a dreadful tragedy. And this is, um, I think this is the origin of, of Buddhist humor. In your novel, you use a lot of specific kind of constructions, uh, language constructions, to, to convey some of these jokes. Uh, sometimes you'll have... Uh, San Chai will will look at something and see something just completely incredible, and the way he says it so matter of factly. Yes, uh, it, it's just really funny. Could could you talk about some of those kinds of const linguistic constructions that you bring to this? Well, I think what it is is a juxtaposition of um, a simple statement of fact, and then you have um, then you have San Chai's comment on it. I mean, I think perhaps one of the most dramatic is um, when the American uh, is killed. Uh, he's killed by a shot in the head, and there's blood and there's cerebral fluid coming out of his head. And Sunshine is looking at this, and instead of um, doing what a Westerner might do, like how dreadful or how awful, and suppose that was me, and isn't life awful? What he's observing is the the insects which come and prey on the cerebral fluid, and remembering that those insects were once human consciousness themselves, who made some <laughs> serious mistakes in their lives and ended up as insects. I mean, this is this, this is the juxtaposition of a simple fact which any Westerner can observe. In other words, a, a dead body bleeding, and a totally Oriental reaction to it. I really enjoyed too the scenes with Lek and Kimberly. This is a, a mm. kind of a humorous subplot that you have going. And it also, again, that really spins off this schism between the East and the West. So yes. explain who Leck is and what he's doing and how Kimberly reacts to that. Well, Leck is, is typical, I'm afraid, of very, really a quite a large number of young Thai men who decide fairly early on that they want to be women. This is, I mean, it's a well-known phenomenon all over the world, and it's, it has a, a huge um, historical background in 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 Asia. Um, transsexuals in India have had a, a hugely important function, rituals, religious rituals, and so on, for thousands of years. And then you have the eunuch tradition in China, which is very, very similar in reality. So what Lek wants to do is to is to become a woman. He's a young, beautiful, sensitive man, and. Uh, Quite naturally, the 30-something Kimberly, who's um, sexually frustrated, finds him deeply beautiful and then gets a terrible shock when she realizes that he's going to have surgery to turn himself into a woman. Tell us uh, about the, the relationship between Sanchai and, and Lek, because Lek considers Sanchai is like his master. He's a, he's a slave. Oh, this, this is simply a reflection of the way, uh, way Thais see the world. If you, if you employ a Thai or you're a Thai being employed by a Thai. All sorts of expectations arise which do not arise in the West. The, the, and this is not only Thailand. This is the whole of, um, of Asia, I think, certainly Southeast Asia. The Chinese are the same. You go and work for someone, that you, you, you feel immense gratitude that that person is giving you the means to feed yourself and your family. At the same time, that person has a sort of a paternal obligation towards you because they're making a profit out of you. Um, so it's it's really like a family relationship.
one of the comments that I believe Son Chai makes is uh, about a he's talking to somebody who has achieved a higher level of Buddhist uh, awareness than he has, and the the uh, comment is just phenomenal. <laughs> the, even emotional anguish is simply another misleading phenomenon, like everything else in the world. Oh, absolutely. You, what you always have to remember about Buddhism is that it's centered on something called nirvana. What is nirvana? Nirvana is the ultimate state of, the original state of consciousness, I should say. What is the original state of consciousness? It has no material counterpart at all. It does not express itself materially. By our means, by our means of measuring anything, it doesn't actually exist at all. Okay, you take that and you turn it on its head. What are you trying to do? You're trying to experience nirvana. You're, you're trying to take your mind into that particular um, extraordinary space. What does that involve? It involves dismantling every kind of structure that you've been programmed with since birth, and not just you since birth, but the whole of your culture. In reality, what Buddhism does is it totally rejects the prevailing culture, but it does it in, in, the, in the nicest, most diplomatic kind of way because it realizes just how revolutionary that really is. And if you look at the way Buddhism developed, you see what happened. Buddhists formed um, monasteries or groups just outside of town, never actually in the town um, during, the, during the Buddha's day, usually quite a few miles out of town, so that the townspeople would not be threatened by these extraordinary beings in their saffron robes who thought and acted totally differently to everybody else. Um, so that's it. You, you, the, the, a true Buddhist does not accord any eternal value to any material um, thing at all. One of the, I think, the notions that, that runs through this book very strongly is the idea of embracing uh, oppositional beliefs. Yes. I, what? How does that play into the plot of the novel, and how does that play into your understanding of Thailand and Buddhism? Well, the the idea of um, of oppositions really is duality, um, pairs of opposites, and this is how. Once you uh, in Buddhism and in Hinduism, once you enter into the material world. You're stuck in a world of duality, um, black, white, good, bad, male, female, and so on. From all of these pairs of opposites, everything is created. And I think mathematics, Western mathematics, would sort of agree with that in a, in a strange kind of way. But the object of Buddhism is not to get to remain stuck in that world or to become more sophisticated in that world, but to escape from it altogether. So you have time and time in, uh, in the, again in the book opposites coming together and there's some kind of resolution of the opposition which then leads on to, to another stage. And it's really, in Buddhism there are three um, conditions of being for everything, um, animals, earth, universe, and even thoughts. It's birth, it's duration, and it's death. Everything is subject to those rules. And if you look at the way the, the chapters and the, and the plot evolves, it's, it's, um, it's following that system. That's really interesting. You were in Thailand during a government coup. Yes. <laughs> this must have been pretty exciting. And I wonder if you tell me a little bit about your experience of the coup and how it was portrayed within Thailand and what you saw of how it looked from the outside. Uh, it's so marvelously Thai. I mean, I was in bed and I got this uh, text message from a Thai friend which had the single word revolution. 
And uh, so naturally, I couldn't sleep anymore that night. And I was thinking, oh, my God, my, as, a, as a European, my mind immediately goes back to the French Revolution, heads rolling and all that sort of thing, and all the other revolutions you've heard about, tanks and people being slaughtered and so on. So I got up the next day, and yes, sure enough, there was a, there was a revolution, and uh, the army had taken over, and Taksin, the prime minister, was out of the country, and he wasn't going to be allowed back. And I <laughs> went shopping, and... The shoppings were were operating as normal, and uh, went to a bar and uh, had a drink and played pool because I like to play pool and everything was happening as normal, and then um, this marvelous news came through that it, you know if you wanted to um, go see the revolution so to speak what you did you got a cab or a motorbike taxi to um, the, the, the center of Bangkok, what is like the administrative political center of Bangkok, which includes a, a lot of um, open areas. And there were these um, these wonderful soldiers in their tanks and their people coming around and, one, and having themselves photographed with the soldiers and bringing them flowers and um, bringing their kids, the little young kids, and the soldiers would hold the young kids obligingly so that people could take pictures of them. And uh, it was just a very, very... This revolution was a very festive occasion, I have to say. <laughs> uh, how did it, the Thai media portray it? Uh, in exactly that way. Uh, they just followed the followed the lead of the generals, which was they, the generals are calling a soft revolution or a silk revolution. As far as I know, no, absolutely nobody has um, has lost their life as as a result as a direct result of the uh, of this revolution. And the newspapers were were literally um, showing photographs of what I've just described. That's that people very often families, Thai families, with their kids having their photographs taken with the um, soldiers in their tanks. Well, what was the effect of this revolution aside from a kind of a one-day party in the streets? Well, well, that's that's where you come to the the, 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 the not so efficient side of the Thai mind. I mean, they were supposed to completely uh, restructure the constitution and uh, provide a way of um, of being democratic without subjecting themselves to the ruthless exploitation, which um, allegedly is what Taksin was up to. Um, but then, you know, the whole thing ended up in discussions and um, people wanting to go one way and wanting to go another and generals trying to uh, run a modern economy and it just not working. And the whole thing is sort of, um, it's become a bit of a mess, actually. So that's where it is now? Mess? It's a bit of a mess, yeah. They're a very confusing mess. The Thais themselves are very confused and just don't know uh, which way the country's going to go. It's... it's, it's um, it's a little unnerving, but as I say, it's um, it's all done Thai style, so there's a sort of a silk, soft silk touch to everything. It's interesting the way it was portrayed in the media. On the BBC headlines, it had like quotes, coup! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, um, I guess, you know, technically it's a coup, but uh, nobody died. And uh, CNN also, for CNN, it was like a joke. And they had a... a, a an article, everything you need to know about the Thai revolution. <laughs> and it was like, so what happened? A bit sneaky, wasn't it? <laughs> Tanks on the street, generals on television. It's all a bit old-fashioned, isn't it? <laughs> well... Um, I, I think you can say it's old-fashioned because they were tanks and generals, but you could say it's ultra-modern in the sense that nobody was hurt and the, and the uh, apparent purpose of the whole thing was to actually um, cure corruption. I mean, who knows how many Western democracies are going to have to face that crisis sooner or later given the present climate. That's true. And their main concern was, should I still book my ticket to Phuket? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what they said too, as well. Yeah. Uh, 
your books has wonderfully sympathetic characters. You like pretty much everybody, even mm. damn wrong. Oh yeah, who's mm. who's incredibly evil in many <laughs> ways and, and concocts the most horrific manner of death that you can imagine for mm. for these people. How do you go about as a writer creating sympathetic characters who are going to torture and murder other sympathetic characters? I think it's a Buddhism. I think what you look at is not what they're doing, but um, the origin of it. And if you look at her background, how awful things were, how she was seduced and abused by her father, it's perfectly easy to understand how a psyche could get twisted in that way without necessarily hating them. Like I say, there's no original sin. If there's no original sin, there isn't this sense that... um, this person is good, that person is evil, therefore we love the good person and hate the evil person. This, to me, is, um, I'm sorry, it's its childish. The Buddhism has a much more sophisticated approach. And, and I, I, the other character who I thought was really really fun was Kimberly. You spend a lot more time with Kimberly this time around. Why mm. did you cho- choose to do that? Um, partly readers. Readers... Um, Obviously, I think more than half of my readers are, are women, uh, are American women. Really? Yes. Are you kidding? No, These no. books are just like uh, about nonstop wild sex. I... <laughs> well, <laughs> I where, where have you been since the, <laughs> the sexual revolution? Uh, no, and um, they were at, um, after I published Bangkok Tattoo, I got some complaints come in. You know, where's Kimberly? We haven't got someone to relate to here. So, and I, I thought, well, that's true. And um, I like if you know I like if if a reader's comment makes sense to me I like to incorporate it in the next book and it was a reader's comment about ghosts uh, uh, um, that um, prompted me to put ghosts in this book as well. You know that's one aspect we haven't talked about in this book is the the way you deal with sex. Mm. This you have way more sex in this book than the average book, mm. yet. It never seems gross, pornographic, or titillating. Mm. There's a kind of a distancing effect, and sometimes it's funny, and sometimes it's sweet, and sometimes it's just there. Could you talk about how you create that distancing effect with your language, Sanchai's voice? Well, I simply strip away any kind of titillation. Um, I think that's there's been quite a few critics who, or reviewers who have made that point, that it's, there's, if there's no attempt to titillate the reader when you're describing sex, then it becomes... In a sense, even more interesting because you're not. It's not sort of um, something that hits you in the groin. It's something that that makes you think about. Yeah, this is what we do when we're having sex. But when we're having sex, we don't think about it in that way. So uh, there's a sort of a frisson there, like almost objectively describing something which is so profoundly personal. You never normally see it described in that way, except in, well, you don't. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. The next book, I was. this book is the first in a second contract with Knopf, two-book contract. So I'm working on the next book, which um, which includes um, Sunshine and, and the gang. Oh, good. I can't <laughs> wait to, to see them again. <laughs> Great. We've been speaking with John Burdett. His new book is Bangkok Haunts. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you, Rick. Thank you so much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.